I was sitting in the den of my then home and I was writing an essay. The essay was uh, an academic work and it was inspired uh, by the prophet, the Hebrew prophet Amos. My task in this particular uh, paper was to take one of Israel's 8th century prophets, Micah, Amos, Hosea, or 1st Isaiah. I was to take one of these prophets, four prophets who were considerably interested in the arena that we now refer to as social justice. They were particularly interested in social justice, the care of the vulnerable and the marginalized, because they believed that Israel's that Israel's spirituality was devastated by their abject failure in this arena. Israel's internal treatment of their own marginalized, their own vulnerable, was so abhorrent that these prophets were for sure that Israel themselves was soon to face a demise. It should not be surprising that as I was writing an essay on social justice from these prophets, trying to connect one of their texts to a modern issue that at that time, 16 months ago, I chose the plight of our LGBT siblings. I even titled the paper LGBTA, and A is for ally, A is for Amos. In the middle of writing that paper on social justice and the spiritual care that we should give to all of our brothers and sisters, I received a call from my dear longtime friend Bevan Hawk. Bevan has served this church as a board member since its inception, and Bevan is personally responsible for the name Grace Point. He was the one in the beginning that found that name for us. He called me in December of 2014, some almost 16 months ago, and he told me that our mutual friends, Michael and Josh, had just received the difficult news that the officiant for their celebration of marriage was not going to be able to perform the ceremony. As I understand it, the pressure was too stiff, the pressure was too direct, and the, the officiants had had to back out. This was two weeks before their big day. Bevan also mentioned what I already knew, and that is that these two dear friends of mine had always wanted me to perform their ceremony. Michael and I have been close. We grew up in the same denomination. We were at Christ Church together. He was Grace Point's first pastor of worship and arts and a wonderful pastor on our staff. But the reason they had not asked me is because they knew the process Grace Point was going through and they did not want to cause problems for me, their friend, nor this church that they loved. Bevan and I wrestled for a good while with the potential, no, not the potential, the inevitable fallout if I chose to perform this ceremony at the Country Music Hall of Fame in front of 300 people with cameras flashing. Finally, with no decision made and my conscience and soul raw, even tortured that day, we concluded the conversation. And I sat there after all of the talk and all of the consideration and all of the concern for the political ramifications. I sat there while ruminating there in my front room, struggling, miserable, scared, torn, angry, but I had a sense that this was a soul-making moment. I also had a sense that it had the potential to be a soul-killing moment. I intuited very clearly that this would be a life-changing day for me either way. 
I did what I often do, and I avoided in that moment of pain making a decision. I think time is almost always an ally. I'm not sure it was at that moment. And I returned to my computer, and as I returned to the computer screen and the paper I was writing, there on the screen, I was writing a sermon to myself. LGBT and A for ally, A for Amos. So strange or not so strange that Bevan's call had come at that moment and this decision faced me as I sat there academically writing a paper, abstracting about a subject that is so deeply incarnate. I looked on the screen and I saw my heart, I saw my conscience, I saw my soul, and I also saw beyond these black letters on a gray screen the faces of my two dear friends and it was, to say the least, a divine moment and a thin place for me. There was nothing else to do, but I called them and I let them know that I would perform the ceremony. I didn't think about. I didn't think through perhaps all of the things I should have thought through, but I did think through that day that I could not find a way to say no and remain fully human or remain fully alive. And so I said the only words that I could say, I said yes. And I was at peace and I was horrified. I returned to the essay after that phone call. And for the next two hours, it was as though the muses of heaven came and dictated through my heart and on to the screen were these words. I have been sitting with this essay and this sermon for almost 16 months wondering when I would have occasion, if ever, to share it. Earlier in this week, strangely, this sermon came to my mind, and I began to feel like today was the day. Frankly, I immediately wondered what some of you are wondering, and I wondered how this would relate to Easter and the resurrection. We have, after that decision, moved on, and we do not exploit that decision any more than we continue to talk about civil rights for people of color, women, we don't give disclaimers every time Melissa preaches as a pastor in this church. There are some decisions you make for the gospel's sake and you move on and quit talking about them. And it's the best thing you can do. And so I wondered, how in the world would I feel in my heart to do this message at Easter? And I sat with that for three days and I just allowed myself to be at peace and I thought the answer would come either by this sermon being dismissed from my mind. It wasn't. And late in the night, Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, around 3 or 4, I woke up with Luke 24 on my mind. It was a story of two Emmaus-bound disciples on the first Easter. Two Emmaus-bound disciples who met the risen Savior, and yet the Bible says they did not know that the person they met was the risen Savior. In one of his first appearances to his beloved disciples, Jesus appeared and shielded their eyes from his identity, walked with them all afternoon, discussing with them the scriptures, encouraging them from the Hebrew prophets that what had happened to their Lord was, was not lost on eternity or heaven, but had been planned and prepared. At the end of the day, the Bible said, after being with Jesus all afternoon, the first Easter these beloved disciples came to their house, it was even time, and they would have split with him, but as he continued to walk down the road, these two men looked at him and said, Dear stranger, it is a dark road, 
It is a dangerous road. And though we have known you only hours, as Middle Eastern tradition and hospitality goes, these men in kind said, would you come into our home? Would you come into our home and would you allow us to feed you? Would you break bread with us? To which the risen Christ looked at them as simply a stranger and said, I will. And into their home came a stranger. He sat at their table and they gave him their food. And when this strange stranger put his hands on the bread, the Bible said he broke it. And when he broke the bread, a vision from three days before, when a man they knew, a Lord they knew, had broken bread the same. In his hands the bread caused their eyes and souls to open, and the Bible said they knew then this was the risen Lord. The Bible tells us immediately Jesus disappeared. And after disappearing, the disciples exclaimed to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us when we were on the road? Didn't we know there was something special about that stranger? And the Bible said after that exclamation, they ran to the other disciples and they immediately proclaimed, Christ is risen. And in the early hours of Thursday morning, I realized exactly why I was to share this message today. And that is that the stranger became the risen Christ only as they welcomed him into their home, gave him their food, and ate with him. They did not meet the risen Christ due to their great faith or any expectation of meeting him. They met the risen Christ because they cared for one that otherwise would not have been in their home before. And it has been over this last year and a half through the opening of our home to these strangers on the road that we have truly experienced the risen Christ. And to that end, I want to tell you a bit of mine and all of our journey with these strangers on the road. Forgive me for the reading of an essay on Easter Sunday, but there are more reasons than even these that I believe it is due, and I'll tell you more of them in a moment. I remember I was in fourth grade when the happenstance reading of a Dear Abby article informed me of a fact about us humanoids that I, in my first decade of life, had been completely oblivious to. I described the reading of that 10-year-old boy named Stan as happenstance because on that particular day, the famed advice columnist and her column just happened to be immediately across from the cartoon section of our small-town paper, the Perigal Daily Press. So there I was, fresh off the bus, eating my after-school snack and ingesting an intellectual diet composed of Snuffy Smith, Beetle Bailey, and Family Circus when this inadvertent meandering of my eye across the page led me to that day's attempt by one of the Phillips twins at syndicated therapy. Now I want to tell you up front that while what I read and learned that day in no way scandalized me, the new information I gleaned from Miss Van Buren was very foreign to me. Actually, it was incredibly strange to this Christian child three miles down a gravel road in 1978's rendition of rural Arkansas. 
That momentous and liminal afternoon, I, whether by chance or providence, I do not know, I read the tortured plea for help of a young man. A young man who, though he wanted desperately, he told dear Abby he could not find a way to tell his parents that he was gay. Tortured by his self-imposed but no doubt socially reinforced inability to share this important part of himself, this poor human being, anonymously and with abandon, bled his soul onto the altar of our little newspaper and another million like it. Having no idea what the word gay meant or for that matter how holy this moment was, not only for that anonymous young man but for me, I continued to read until finally in his Finally, in his bleeding, I deductively pieced together via the indirect hints and pained intimations of this obviously struggling soul that Abby's unnamed interlocutor liked men. That he liked men. Not in the way that I like my dad or my brother or my buddy Buck, but he liked men the way I liked the tow-headed girl who sat three rows up on the school bus, the one who acted like she did not know I existed, yet made me feel alive in ways and places beyond my very limited capacity to then understand. And on that wonderfully confusing and confusingly wonderful day, I was introduced to a new reality of this beautiful gift we know as the universe, a reality that as realities and exposure are wont to do, would afford me the capacity to embrace this gift called life more fully, more wholly than I had before. I was introduced to the reality that love is truly a many-splendored thing. I was introduced to the idea that love is bigger and broader and deeper and wider than I could imagine, that it is meted out and received in ways beyond what one life or one group could ever possibly contain and or express. One fact that is incredibly noteworthy to me now as I reflect back on that day that day from which on one hand I am removed by some 38 years and on the other hand feels as close as yesterday. One thing very noteworthy to me as I remember that day is that though this new information that a man could like, yea, love, a man the way I knew men liked, yea, loved women, though that fact was indeed foreign and new to me, I distinctly remember that in my 10-year-old heart I felt no sense of wrong. I felt no sense that something was amiss, no foreboding sense that the devil was afoot here. In my innocent garden where no serpent voices had been heard on the matter, there was no shame, there was no thought of sin. Well, you could easily knee-jerk in your response and say, well, of course you didn't. You were 10 years old. Ah, but you would not be attuned to the hypervigilance of that little boy named Stan. Reared in the most scrupulous of fundamentalist religious sects, I had for years been acutely aware of the matters of sin, guilt, repentance, salvation, damnation, and God's strange psychic mixture of wrath and love. For that little boy named Stan, if shame were lent, he was a black wool sweater. His frequent trips to the altar provoked only or provided only a modicum of relief for his increasingly religiously damaged psyche. Just as Israel's angst-riddled King Saul used David's harp to calm the troubled waters of his tormented soul, that little boy bit his fingernails to a quick, suffered with a spastic colon, and used Sunday night fevered ecclesial moments to soothe his shame-coated little heart. Oh, I knew sin, and even more, I knew shame. 
and I knew sin even when it wasn't sin, I'll restrain myself here lest I need a trip to my therapist tomorrow. But suffice to say, when I was introduced to the reality that God had children who were different in this way from me, children of God who were, well, gay was the new word, I sensed no wrong. And I remember finding out how wrong I was in sensing no wrong the next day when I told my fourth, when I told my fourth grade teacher, I can still remember the look on her face. I remember finding out how wrong I was in sensing no wrong when I revealed this new piece of information to my Sunday school teacher a few days later. They made it clear to me that these people were sick. I can only imagine in that little 10-year-old body, if I had been one of them, what those faces would have looked like, what those words would have sounded like. Even for me, that little heterosexual boy, shame ensued and the subject went dormant for the foreseeable future but a seed had been planted. Since that time, some 38 years ago, I've learned a lot about this subject, albeit less through abstractions, through black letters on white pages, or through critical texts of science and theology, but I have learned a lot about this subject through the fleshly incarnate letters and words and sentences that are my brothers and sisters who happen to be. I've learned a lot in the years since I, little by little, weaned off the breast of the only world I knew and traveled up that one-and-a-half-lane gravel road onto a world filled with a complex mosaic of beautiful lives. Lives that have expanded my simple palette of primary colors by introducing me to shades and hues beyond what I could have never imagined growing up in that 1,100-square-foot home. That little Jim Walters home that was neither large nor small but simply all I knew. Thankfully, almost four decades later, I can stand on this side of 38 resurrections, 38 Easter's, and tell you that no small gravel road, no small house, no small church, no small education, no small community, even no small God could keep the beauty of truth suppressed. Thankfully, I have experienced and continue to experience the liberating effects of honest exposure to the world and universe around me. And as Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. is reported to have said, the mind once exposed to a better idea can never shrink to its original size. This is doubly so for the soul. So here I sit today as a grateful participant in an ever-growing corporate cultural consciousness, and though unfortunately halting in its gait and progress, I am a part of an ever-growing consciousness within even the Christian church I so dearly love and cannot give up on. An ever-growing awareness and understanding of more than gay or lesbian or homosexuality or heterosexuality or bisexuality or transgender, but of sexuality itself and even more of what it means to be human and paradoxically and even more of what it means to be alive. And simultaneously of how large and small a part of my identity sexuality and gender actually are in the grand scheme of things. And I'm quite thankful today that the acronym LGBT has grown to another letter that includes a heterosexual like me. While I must admit that I do hope that one day there will be no need for an acronym, a day when many of our seemingly important adjectives will become unnecessary in the presence of a noun so complete, lovely, and grand as child of God, 
I must admit that I am thankful that the acronym has made it to the most recent accretion, the letter A. That this group of people still struggling valiantly, our sons, our daughters, our husbands, our wives, our children, our cousins, our friends. That they are still struggling valiantly, not for the luxuries, but simply the most basic staples of inclusion. That they, that they, with their wounds still a healing, that their wounds still a gape, that they would have the capacity to welcome some of us from the majority group, a group that to the present hour continues to render them so much pain, that they would give us a letter in their name. This is clear testimony to the image of God that is their heritage as it is ours. Living testaments to the power of divine forgiveness and healing, they have graciously given us a place in their very name. A, they tell us, is for ally. A is for those who are not like them, and yet, and yet they are. We are just like them. A is for ally. A is for those who, by the grace embedded in the fabric of their very, very being, have been empowered to swim upstream. A is for those who have swum upstream against the mad currents of bigotry, fear, scarcity, and raw selfishness, both within and without. A, they tell us, is for ally, for those who have kept swimming, for those who have been buoyed by their inherent divinity against the violent undertoes of ignorance and hatred. A is for those who have kept swimming until the current turned and carried us laughing and crying into the boundless ocean known as the kingdom of God. A, they tell us, is for ally. And I am thankful to be called ally by these, the least of these, these who I first knew as a 10-year-old boy as strange strangers, but now know them as the presence of Christ taken into the home of my heart. While I deeply hold still that our sacred text, the Bible, was forged to be a surgical scalpel, there is no arguing that it has frequently, viciously, and tragically been wielded as a dagger against the vulnerable, against the slave, against the woman, against the divorcee, against the poor, even the rich. And yet in spite of our unfortunate history with this book, I believe this complex sacred text, when read properly, offers itself as a faithful and effective ally to those cast down, those left out, those pushed away from the table, even the table called the Lord's. So I want us to be mindful now of a text drawn from the pages of a book inspired by the life and voice of a Hebrew prophet named Amos. This majestic piece of literature, some two and a half millennia old, reminds us that God's heart has always been for those cast down, those left out, and those pushed away from the table. The text by Amos is the text that I employed some 16 months ago. And if I had any wonder after Thursday mornings speaking to me about Luke 24 and the strangers brought into the home, if I had any wonder that this message was for today, by not happenstance, but I think providence, yesterday, my brother invited me to come to Memphis, Tennessee. He invited me down to Butler Street. He invited me to Central Barbecue. It was his 50th birthday, today is my 48th birthday. My parents and my sister came, and as I sat at Central Barbecue and looked out the window, my eyes fell on a sign. I had no idea. The Lorraine Motel. 
almost drunk, I stumbled out of that place and I walked over to a sign that said, Lorraine Motel, I have a dream. And I looked at a wreath and a balcony and I remembered a speech at the mall on Washington where a man 38 years old 38 years old, use a text from Amos, the fifth chapter. And it's the text that I use today, the text that I wrote from 16 months ago. Said during an era of prosperity in Israel some seven and a half centuries before Christ, the prophetic figure Amos incisively challenged the supposedly favored, exclusivistic people of God. He challenged them regarding the veracity of their faith, he boldly confronted the futility and vacuous nature of their religious life, and in spite of their careful religiosity and hypervigilant cultic practices, in spite of their sacrifices and spiritual-sounding songs, in spite of their formal prayers and scrupulous observance of holy days like this one, he plainly told them that they were in no way impressing God. To the contrary, he opined, they and their hollow religion were repugnant to Yahweh. Why, you ask? On this, the prophet was equally clear. Their religion was vain and their prayers were impotent as a direct result of how they treated the vulnerable caste of their society. The rural poor among them, too many steps removed from the margins of profit, were not only cut off from opportunity, but they were directly exploited, including sexually, and from every angle. Ultimately, even the little these poor had was replaced with unpayable debt, leaving them no recourse but becoming the slave tribe of Israel. This type of injustice was sadly, Amos said, not exceptional, but had become the rule in a myriad of forms. Having profaned the very heart of their ancestral covenants by transgressing the inseparable commands to love God and their neighbors, the people of Israel with callous consciences gathered in settings such as we are in this morning and pathetically attempted to cover their dark souls with religious vestments. But Amos reminded them that God was no fool and God would not be mocked. And in the words of another prophet of Israel who would come some eight centuries later, one whose feet would pad the streets of Galilee and walk on its slight sea, in the words of a prophet named Jesus echoing Amos, the people had only whitewashed a grave and yet in spite of the flashy veneer, no difference was made beneath the surface where God actually saw. The judgment was clear per Amos. There was no song so lofty in its content or celestial in its presentation that it could offset the rampant sexual abuse of the innocent and unprotected. There was no sacrifice so costly, no holy day so pure that it would compensate the devastated poor for their familial enslavement. And there was no religious festival so keenly tuned that it could justify the pervasive miscarriage of justice suffered by the marginalized among them. Only one remedy was possible, came the plaintive cry of the prophet from Tekoa. Only one thing could correct Israel's prodigious failure. And we read now the text. And I pray to God that we will commit ourselves today to the prophetic call of Easter to be an ally of the vulnerable, a friend of the outcast. To the knowledge that if we truly want to meet a resurrected Christ, very much of it depends upon how we take the stranger off the dark road into our home. Amos 5, verse 18, comes the word from the prophet. 
the words from King in the mall on Memphis and the King, the words that dropped into my hurting, scared heart 16 months ago. Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness for you, not light. The day of the Lord will come as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Thus saith the Lord, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your choirs. Take away from me the noise of your praise. Take away from me the noise of your song. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But if you want to meet a resurrected Christ, let justice roll down like waters and let righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Oh, my sisters and brothers, did you hear the words of Amos? And more importantly, did you perchance hear the word of the Lord? On that fate-filled day when we will stand to give an account of our lives, the gospel of Matthew chapter 25 agrees with the herdsman prophet named Amos when it makes clear that our sweet Christ will not say, well-believed. He will not say, well-sung. He will not say, well-learned. A thousand times, no. He has already given us the answers to life's great final. On that day, he will say, well done. Well done. And what was it that we have done? Oh, Amos would have liked this. To every ally, Jesus will say, I was hungry and you fed me, thirsty and you gave me drink. To every ally, he will say, I was naked and you clothed me, sick and you came to me. I was a prisoner and you visited me. To every ally, he will say, I was a stranger and you took me in. And then we will say, in Eden's innocence, only restored by love, when did we see you a stranger? And he will retort with the heart of both Torah and gospel, as much as you did it to the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you did it to me. So let justice roll down like waters and let righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And on behalf today of those estranged strangers who wear the letters of L and G and B and T, May I propose to you that if these letters are indeed scarlet in hue, it is not for sin nor shame that they are so tinted, not tainted, but because they are the color of the blood in the veins of those who wear them, the same color as the blood in mine. And over this last year and three months, in opening my heart's home to these strangers, I have found that I have received vastly more than I bargained for. I gave them my bread and I received into my life the bread of life. I received them into my home and I have actually taken in another. Another with capital A who took on flesh and filled divine veins with that same scarlet strain of blood that every wall would be broken down between us and we would finally be one. Oh dear stranger, won't you come in from the dark road and be warmed by the fire of my heart. Won't you stay with me a while, sit at my table, eat my food, and break my bread with your hand? Sweet stranger, will you come in from the dangerous road 
until I find that you are actually no stranger at all but the sacrament, yea, the presence of God. On this Easter, I am thankful to celebrate and to be reminded of all these 16 months have taught me that the stranger on the Emmaus Road becomes the risen Christ only as you bring them into your home and give them your bread. So thank you, Amos, for reminding me of what it means to be truly religious. Thank you, for Mar Martin, for reminding me of what it means to be Christian. And thank you, dearest, dear Abby, thank you for being ahead of the game in 1978 and being a true Sunday school teacher to that 10-year-old confused boy. And thank you to all of the allies and all of the strangers who have been Christ unaware. Thank you for making it possible to credibly call this place the Lord's Table. Thank you, sweet allies, sweet strangers who have mixed so long that now we can scarcely know the difference. Thank you for allowing this place to credibly be called Grace Point. And as the writer of Hebrews 13 and 2 said, that we should be very careful not to neglect hospitality to strangers because it might just be that they are the risen Christ. I know that's a reread, but I think the Lord would like it. And I say to that writer of Hebrews, it is better than you know. And I say to Jay that I grew up with, went to school with for 13 years. I walked with him for 13 years and we were never friends. He was the sweetest of child, always smiling with that pronounced underbite he smiled even when he cried he was always the last picked and it was unfortunate that he had a name like Jay in Paragold, Arkansas in the 70's because it was so easy for his name to rhyme and to that little sissy boy he became gay Jay We stood at his coffin, ashamed and embarrassed in his late 20s, wondering how cirrhosis of the liver could take someone so young and why he drank so much. Looking at that tomb today, I say on behalf of every repentant ally, I look back now to those days, those haunting days, those words that should have never been said, those games that should have never been played, and I say as the men on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us? Did we not know that this was someone special? Did we not know how wrong we were? Why did he have to disappear before we knew that he was the Easter presence of Jesus in our midst, and we missed him.
He is not missed now. And on behalf of him and because of him and others like him, for every ally I stand in this church, and I perhaps will never say another word about this matter for five years. But on this Easter Sunday, it was time to tell the story of my essay and to tell the story of what it means to be an ally. This, brothers and sisters, is the true message of Easter. Can you say amen? Amen.